Open your Bible with me, please, to the book of Jeremiah. A single line in chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 17. You shall say to them this word. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day. And let them not cease, for the virgin daughter is struck down with a crushing blow, with a very grievous wound. Let's pray. Holy Father, do we even dare to call you Father at a moment like this? And are those tears on your cheeks for your virgin daughter? Dear God, if you open a wound today, please bring the healing as well. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For a few moments, consider with me the cold statistics of the ugly secret. Did you know that every two minutes in the United States, a child is sexually abused? Every two minutes. Only 2% of the molestations are even reported, so we, there is no handle on what those numbers might accurately be. One out of five American families is involved in some form of child abuse. Leading authorities believe one out of ten families is involved in incestuous, you know what the word incest means, incestuous abuse. In the United States, the average age of the abuse victim is 11 years old. Some are infants, some are in their late teens. In a study of female chemical abusers, that would be female alcoholics, that would be female drug addicts, as they studied this segment of the populace, 44% of those women were victims of incest and 75% reported having been sexually abused before the age of nine. They studied 200 street walkers, street prostitutes, and they documented in this study that 75% of them had been raped as children. Moreover, it has been reported that for every victim of incest, sexual abuse within the family, an estimated 10 young victims are molested by an offender outside of the family. Statistics indicate that 9% of American men were abused as children. Can you imagine that? And because you can understand the, the ability to collect uh, accurate statistics is simply difficult, period, there is the, the conviction that in fact the problem is likely underestimated. There was a knock on my study door here at the church. A young woman standing 
on the other side of the door. I'd never seen her before. Turns out she's from out of state. She wanted to talk. She came in. And then haltingly, at first, the sad, sad story tumbles out. This woman has grown up in a Christian home, just like the home you grew up in. But as the story unfolds, it turns out she has been sexually abused by her mother. She's sitting there with shame, deep animosity, guilt, anger, fomenting in, in, in the, the cauldron of her spirit, as it were. And the woman knows she needs to confront her mother. She wants to confront her mother. But as she tells me, mother died just two months ago. And so there she is, enveloped in tears with unresolved guilt, unresolved blame, and open, ugly Emotional and spiritual wound. You shall say to them this word, God speaking. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day. And let them not cease, for the virgin daughter is struck down with a crushing blow and with a very grievous wound. A friend of mine, Dorothy Hayward, she's married to Bruce Hayward, they're both on the pastoral staff of our sister church just across the street, the Village Church. Dorothy is a counselor. She deals with abuse victims. She's recommended this book to me, and I, I want to pass it on to you, Helping Victims of Sexual Abuse, a Sensitive Biblical Guide for Counselors, Victims, and Families. Authors Lynn Heitritter and Jeanette Vout. Now, the reason I'm turning to this book is because there is a story in the book. I need to turn to the story. Pseudonyms, obviously. I turn to the story because we move into such a sensitive subject as this and our, uh, our first community, corporate responses, hey, you know, that, that, that is really tragic what the world has to live with, ugly wounds like that. Wow! It would never happen in a Christian congregation like this. It would never happen on a university campus. It would never happen in a Christian family like my own. It just, we, we feel bad, you understand. Hopefully, this story might uh, dispel the myth that we are somehow absent this ugly wound. So let me read it to you. The church never saw beneath the mask of the Taylor family. Just a, a name picked out of the air. The family attended church faithfully and centered its entertainment around church activities. Though a petite and fragile-looking woman, Mama, that's Mrs. Taylor, seemed to have endless talents for giving and serving. Immaculate in her appearance, she kept the house in near-perfect order and had three, hallelujah, Lovely children, a daughter and two sons. Her frequent illnesses caused much concern to those who knew her, but she remained faithful to her responsibilities at Sunday school superintendent, Christian ed director, missions committee chairwoman. She projected the image of a perfect wife and mother. Now, Mr. Taylor, Papa, was the choir director, the adult Sunday school pastor slash teacher, he often taught about the sins of society and encouraged those in his class to abstain from the worldly pursuits such as drinking and dancing and movies. As a result of his strong discipline in his household, his kids were well-behaved and obedient. A model family within the Church of Christ. 
Now, because of her fragile health, Mrs. Taylor demanded much care from their daughter, Melanie. Melanie thus fulfilled the role of Mama's little helper and learned very young that she, she could get the cold shoulder silent treatment from Mom if she wasn't helpful enough cleaning the house or caring for her little brothers. Even Melanie's mother would express physical affection, but somehow Melanie never felt that she pleased her mother unless she did a perfect job with the home chores. Melanie knew not to do anything to make Papa angry. She knew from the violent spankings her brothers received that she must be careful not to upset him. Questioning her father was not allowed because he was her authority. And saying no was considered to be rebellious. Melanie sensed the tension between her parents. In reality, it was a lack of intimacy. And she felt it was her responsibility to make sure she wouldn't upset them. And so she worked hard to fix herself because it... Convinced she was that she was, in fact, the source of the problem. Now, when Melanie was seven, and some of the details, graphic details, I'm going to leave out of this reading. When Melanie was seven, her father, father phoned from work one afternoon and said he'd be coming home to see if she'd been obedient doing her chores. So she quickly finished cleaning the kitchen for his approval. When he walked in, he sent her brothers out to play and took her into the bedroom. What took place there began to become a repeated pattern, sometimes in the bedroom, sometimes driving alone in the car. Her father always told her, now, now, don't tell your mother. It will kill her. If she finds out, she will die, and it will be your fault. The intensity, the shame, the fear, and the rage was stuffed deep inside Melanie's little soul as the abuse, the abuse continued for years. When she was 13... Three of her aunts approached her, concerned that her father might attempt to, as they put it, touch her wrong. Then Melanie learned that her father had been having sexual relationships with these aunts, her mother's sisters. And they had come to warn her. She broke down and cried, telling them it was already too late. Her aunts reported the abuse to the authorities and Melanie's father was picked up by the police. However, a consuming fear remained. And, of course, it's mother. Mother's fragile health. Shall we tell mother? What shall we tell mother? Finally, the three sisters screw up their courage enough to take mama to the doctor's office. And at the doctor's office, they, Melanie's sitting outside the door, they tell mother what has been going on for all these years. Melanie hears her mother screaming on the other side of the door. Father is taken off to jail. Aunts leave. Melanie now and mother ride home. And Melanie looks, uh, mother rather, looks intently at her 13-year-old daughter and asks, How could you do this to me? You took my husband away. How could the church, how could the church have been an instrument of healing for the Taylor family? Good question. Where is the church in the middle of this ugly wound? What could have been done after the incest was reported? In Melanie's case, the church failed her entirely. No one ever mentioned the incident again. No one encouraged her to seek counseling for her incest. No one visited her father in prison. No one helped Mrs. Taylor see the role she had played in the incest. Melanie instead grew up in a church and a family that went on as if nothing had happened and ignored her, except for occasionally reminding her that she had ruined her family. Melanie grew up. She went to school. Maybe she's here. Melanie later married, endured an abusive relationship with her husband for 12 years, went through the shame and stigma of divorce, remarried, only to become victimized all over again. 
At 45, on the brink of an emotional collapse, she finally sought counseling and began to discover the truth about incest, about who she was, and about who God is. She agreed to describe her trauma in this book so that others would be encouraged to look beneath the mask to see the incest that does exist within the Christian church. End of story. Talking with one of my colleagues yesterday who knew about this sermon coming up, he said, I'll tell you, one of my kids was working with a child at school who was secretly planning to commit suicide because of abuse in that home. Don't you say and think for a moment that somehow the, the, the pristine body of Christ is exempted from the ugly wound. And so we come today to this sermon, and I must tell you, I, I do so with great uh, uh, trepidation. I realize this is not at all a pleasant subject for us to deal with as a worshiping community. And I, the only reason we deal with it is because of the commission from our Family Life Committee here at Pioneer that said, okay, Pastor, you preach a series. We want it on human sexuality and the, and the family in the third millennium. And I would be remiss. It would be wrong to deal with human sexuality and not confront sexual childhood abuse. Because the fact of the matter is, we have kids today right here, right now. You know, we, ha we have students right here at this moment. We have grown-up children in this building who have been abused. What is more, we also have the abusers here at this very second. Simultaneously, both have come to worship God. We're all here together today, right now. So how can we, as tenderly as possible, but as honestly as we are able to bear, confront this subject? I invite you to open your Bible now, please, to the words of Jesus. Where else should we turn at a moment like this? Let's, let's go to Jesus. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, hang on with me. I know that for some of you to even hear the two words put together, sexual abuse, the moment you hear it, you have this horrible knot of oppressive pain and a sense of awful guilt and failure just to hear the words sexual abuse. Never mind attaching child to it. Let's go to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I want to get, move to the context by starting with verse 1. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In verse 2, Jesus called a child whom He put among them. I love the way Mark, who captures this moment, Mark describes Jesus actually leaning over and putting His arms around that child. So the arms of Jesus are around the child as He prepares to speak the following words. Jesus speaks, verse 3, verse three rather, Truly, Amen, that's what it is in the Greek, Truly, Amen, I tell you, Unless you change and become like children, remember he's hugging the child, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, whoever welcomes one such child as he squeezes him to his chest 
in my name welcomes me. Let it be clear, ladies and gentlemen, right here at the outset. The child is a is a one to one identification with Jesus. There is no I am kind of like a child. I sort of like children. No, no. You teach, you touch you touch this child. You touch me. You treat the child. You treat me. We are one. There is a there is a tender identification between the Lord Jesus and children. Now, verse six. Here they come. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, and the Greek word is scandalos or scandalize, from whence comes our word scandalize. If one of you scandalizes any of these children, just one child, it would be better for you if a great millstone, you remember the donkeys back then, they would be tied to these stones and they, they would uh, grind out the grain, you remember that? The, this, the two Greek words here mean the huge, the huge top stone. We're not talking about a little pebble here. We're talking about the, the massive one that it takes donkeys to twist, to grind the grain. It would be better for one of you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks, scandals, occasions for stumbling are bound to come. But woe, woe, woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. No more Mr. Nice Guy now with Jesus. No more, how does the hymn go? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There are only two occasions in the Gospel where, where, where Jesus strips it all down to His furious, righteous core. One of them, you remember, was when He called down the stinging seven woes upon the, the, the religious leaders of Jerusalem for abusing spiritual leadership. The seven woes. The other is right here. Christ will never issue in all his ministry a sterner warning than what he just said. If you touch one of these children, just touch one of these children. I tell you what, it would be better for you to tie a huge stone around your neck, go to the edge of Tuscordia Jenny and jump into Lake Michigan rather than face the day of judgment. You know why Jesus is so incensed? When a little child trusts an adult figure, an authority figure in his or her young life, it is the height of hellish betrayal for that adult or teenager to psychologically abuse that trust and to sexually abuse that child. That's why. In fact, Adele Mayer in her book, Sexual Abuse, I put this on the screen for you, she's right. Victims' loss of trust in authority figures is one of the most devastating effects of incest. Their parents are the first adults children learn to trust. And incest represents the ultimate betrayal of that trust. And by the way, the woundedness not just, does not just begin at two, three, four. That goes on into the 20s and 30s and beyond. I got an email from... Uh, one of our pioneer members saw this series coming up, wondered if perhaps this subject would not be woven into the series on human sexuality. I'm not going to read the whole email to you, but this, this young woman wanted to tell me about her mother. Her mother at the age of 10 is raped and does not come to deal with it till long after this young woman is born. At the age, the mother now is at the age of 35. And then the daughter, the daughter writing to me, Puts it this way, there must be a special place in hell for men who rape children. At least an adult woman already has her identity. A child doesn't. I wish it had been me instead, because I'm stronger. I would have done anything to protect my mother and shield her. 
If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling. Come on, we're in a fallen world. They will come. But woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. Let it be clear, ladies and gentlemen, that incest in all its forms... That sexual abuse in all its manifestations against a child, whether it's within a family or without a family, calls down upon itself the unmitigated wrath of the Son of God. I'm telling you what, folks, this, this, is, this is so utterly out of character with Jesus. I mean, when, when would Jesus ever say, you know what you ought to do? Just tie a stone around your neck and jump off a bridge. That's what you need to do. What is the deal here? I mean, it's embarrassing for me to even read these words in public. And I tell you what. You know, we work hard, and I want to thank you for uh, your, your kind expression a moment ago. It's a privilege for all of us on this pastoral staff to serve this great parish. But we work hard. I mean, we work hard to give both sides of the picture. We work hard to make sure that nobody is offended at all. There is no way you can soft-pedal this. There is no way out of this. Tie a rock around your neck, sir. Drown yourself before you face the judgment. If you touch that child... Our only conclusion has to be this. There, there must be a grave reason why Jesus feels so deeply. I'll tell you, there is a grave reason. It is simple. It is singular. And that reason is this. It's as if Jesus were standing in front of us and he were saying, listen, do you understand? Willfully continue your abuse of that child of yours or that child of another. Read my lips. Continue. You will be lost. Period. It's over. Now I understand. Because if you're lost, he loses the potential of a friend for eternity. And it's so that you won't be lost. So that you will stop, cease and desist now. That he says to you, touch that boy one more time. Touch that girl one more time. Tie the rock. Jump off the bridge. It's over. That's the reason. I think about that young woman who wept in my office. Because she could no longer bring closure to being sexually abused by her mother. Mother died before ever confessing a word to her daughter. My heart goes out to that daughter. I'll tell you what, my heart goes out to the memory of that mother now dead. And so I wish to appeal to the sexual abusers who are here today in worship. To the sexual abusers who are watching right now on television. You need help. There is no way... There is no way, if you're not intent on self-destruction, there is no way for you to find healing without that help. I want to tell you something. God wants to help. Do you know what? God, there is not a sinner on this planet that God does not have healing for. There are competent, professional Christians who are able to lead you out of that dark, dark that ball of chain that you are dragging through this life. But I want to say this, and I, I, I hope I'm not misunderstood. Nobody can do a thing for you unless you are willing to admit you need that help and you ask for it. In our worship bulletin today, there's a little box that says for Pastor Dwight's sermon. There are phone numbers in that box. There are organizations. There are private counselors, Christian counselors, who are able to help those who finally come to the realization, I need help. You're watching on television? All you have to do is punch in our webpage, our website for the Pioneer Memorial Church, pmchurch.org. 
Those same numbers, those same organizations will all be listed there for you. PMChurch.org But Jesus isn't through. Because it is never enough to confront the abuser. You must also comfort the abused. One more passage in that same chapter. We must turn to it. Verse 10, Matthew 18. Jesus speaking, take care. Please take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven, their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. Jesus said, hey, get it, get it, get it. Every child, every abused child has a witnessing guardian angel who faithfully reports to my Father in heaven what is being done to that child right now. Every child has that angel. How does his father respond? Oh, the beautiful parable, verse 12. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Verse 13, and if he finds it truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, punchline, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. It is incredible, ladies and gentlemen, but in that last line we just read are the two very bold assertions that are the most difficult for victims of childhood sexual abuse to accept. The two, in in that one line, it is not the will of your Father in heaven. First of all, to even think of God as Father when too often it was the stepfather or the father in the home who sexually or physically abused his child or his wife is nearly impossible for some victims of such abuse. It's, it's just, I, I am not going to refer to God ever again as Father. In fact, I don't even need a God like that. So, number one, pretty gutsy of Jesus. His solution is to call God Father. The very struggle Victims of sexual child abuse suffer. And number two, to suggest that it was not His will that any child should be lost. Well then, hey, hey, where was this heavenly father of mine when my daddy was doing what he did to me? Why didn't God the Father stop my father? See? The two dilemmas that face victims of childhood sexual abuse. God the Father and God the Protector. Neither image holds well in front of a victim. And yet Jesus dares to introduce both images as the healing metaphors for those who have suffered sexual abuse. Verse 14, So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. Now, come on, Dwight. I mean, how did... How is a victim supposed to justify this? How can you possibly rectify the picture of God as Father and the reality of my ugly wound? I want to go back to the words in Jeremiah. One last time. Let's go back to Jeremiah. You need to read those words now with the realization this is the Father speaking. Let's go back to Jeremiah 14, was it? Yeah, Jeremiah 14. Just for a moment. Take a look at this picture again. Somehow let the verse come alive in your mind, in your heart. Visualize it, if you please. God is speaking. Verse 17. You shall say to them. God wants this word to get to us, ladies and gentlemen. God speaking. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day. And let them not cease. For the virgin daughter, my people, is struck down with a crushing blow and with a very grievous wound. I wish you would picture in your mind a father with his head buried in his convulsing, trembling hands. Watch the fingers on the bottom side drip with tears. This is a papa who weeps over the moaning wound of his little girl. I don't know, papa, if you've had the privilege of having a little girl. 
Some of you have been blessed with all boys. Be thankful for that. But I tell you what, there is nothing more precious that every father deeply loves every boy he has. But I, am I not right? There is nothing more precious than a little girl that comes into your heart, that comes into your home and has daddy wrapped around that little pinky just like this. Nothing more precious. Can you imagine? What if it's my little girl? And what if you, sir, were the perpetrator of that ugly, that awful wound? How do you think I would feel about you? Do you think that somehow I'd say, oh, come on, get over it, sis. These things happen. We live in a fallen world. There isn't a father here whose tears, whose wrath would not be as hot as, hot as his tears. You know, you think about that next time. You think about facing the father. By the way, college boys, think about facing the father. Another subject for another time, of course. <laughs> you wanted me to get into it right now. I could see it in your eyes, but no. I'm not going to be distracted. Nice try. Very nice try. So here is this father moaning over the woundedness that has crushed his little girl. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a picture of God. There are some of you today who are the victims. You were victims at 2 and at 5 and at 12. You're now a teenager. You're now in your 20s. Some of you are in your 50s. You have not dealt with it yet. God's hand, God's head is in His hands and He weeps over the ugly wound that has bound your life up. All these years. So you have Jesus and you have Jeremiah. There is a divine empathy here that is, wow, I mean, it is striking. But I've got to tell you, folks, let's be honest. It's also very perplexing because, God, if, if you really feel so deeply, why didn't you stop this before it happened to me? The moment you ask the why of human evil, you must also ask the what of divine love. You cannot leave the what out. And what is the what of divine love? It is this, that in order for God's love to be loved, He must not only grant you the right to say yes, He must also grant you the right to say no to Him. Which means that He is the God of the abused and He is the God of the abuser. They both came today to worship Him and His arms are outstretched to both. Not that the sexual abuser cares much for God at all in the midst of fulfilling his or her sexual addiction. In fact, let me share this with you. David Siemens, my book in the library, in his book, Healing of Memories, recalls what a wise old counselor once told him when Siemens was beginning his own counseling ministry. I like this. Siemens, there are two topics which will always walk into your counseling room. God and sex. No matter how hard you try, you can't keep them out for long. I think most of our counselors here would concur. Siemens writes... It didn't take me long to discover that the man was right. But now notice, I'll put it on the screen for you. Notice David Seaman's uh, pertinent observation. What took longer was to find out something even more important. Unless people come to terms with both of them, with God and sex, they can never be fully at peace with either. The man who is unable to come to terms with sex will never be at peace with God. And the woman who is unable to come to terms with God will never be at peace with sex. Because the abuser not only has the freedom to say yes to God, but also no to him. That's why the abuser can exercise that very freedom. Who cares about God right now? And abuse the abused. This is the most painful irony of all. Ladies and gentlemen, explain this to me. Simply because the sexual abuser, in exercising his freedom to say no to God, 
turns around and ignores his victim's right to say no to him. God gives him that right, and so he can do what he will not let his victim do. Say no to him. Sometimes to her. Hence the existence of evil in this life. God says, oh, let my, let my eyes run down with tears night and day. Let them not cease for the virgin daughter. My people is struck down with a crushing blow and with a very grievous wound. I want to read a poem to you written by a victim of sexual abuse as a child. Didn't read this in first service. I think you can handle it here. Elizabeth Moore McGonagall. It's a bit, it's a bit uh, descriptive, but it makes the point well enough. It's called inscription. Your words, jagged as broken glass, sharp as icicles, tore through the fine white veil of my innocence, my childhood. Your arms, your hands, plush, warmly stroking, hypnotic, have torn me from limb to limb, razor-like, slashing beauty and virginity and femininity alike. I'm like an ugly circumcision done from pubis to lips, a surreal Picasso nude, chopped apart, reformed in disarray. I have been dipped in the sludge of your depravity. I am foul with your stench. I carry a granite load, your guilt upon my back, chained. It will not shake off. Let no one lightly dismiss what the victims of childhood sexual abuse still carry on those frail little shoulders, even today. So where do we turn? Oh, counselors and therapists alike declare there is hope and there is healing. And they, it's surprising the unanimity. If you can find the one critical step to take, you can be healed. And so I want to close with the words of Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew 18 one last time. Because Jesus has it there. He didn't leave us out on the limb, sawed off now with the ugly wound gaping before us. There is healing. Take a look at this. Matthew chapter 18. I want to go back to that metaphor, that beautiful parable that Christ shared. This is Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. There's a good shepherd. He goes out into the dark night. What's he looking for? The wounded. That one little wounded lamb. The one wandering sheep. The moment we say sheep, it brings back that ancient prophecy. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned all of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You say, hey, come on, Dwight. What, what, what kind of healing for sexual abuse is there? Watch this. I never saw this before. Thank you, Grant Martin. I want to put his words up on the screen. He's written the book, Please Don't Hurt Me. A sensitive look at the growing problem of abuse in Christian homes. Read his words there on the screen. The major ingredient in being able to grant forgiveness is to satisfy the basic emotional requirement someone has to pay. If you were abused by your stepfather, your natural response will be to want someone to pay for that pain and loss. A sin has been committed and you desire revenge. Of course, childhood will never be destroyed, restored. rather. You will not gain the ideal father you never had. 
And the memory of the abuse may never be completely washed away. But you want to be assured some legitimate sacrifice is paid by the one who committed the offense. You know what, madam? God put that sense of justice in your heart. Every human being has been born with a sense of justice and injustice. The victim obviously has developed that sense to an acute pain. Someone has to pay. And you are absolutely right. Absolutely. Now, Martin goes on. The words on the screen. It's against this backdrop of a desire for payment that the death of Christ on the cross begins to take on new meaning. Many of my clients have experienced severe and lengthy abuse earlier in their lives. It was only when the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ was presented in a very practical manner that they were able to break free from the bondage of bitterness. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Someone has paid for your pain and your victimization. There is no question in anybody's mind that a sin indeed has been committed. But you need to know that that sin, had, vengeance has been taken as it were on that sin. It has been paid for. It is the revenge of divine love that has substituted itself and taken upon itself the millstone of judgment that belongs to the abuser. You know what just boggles my mind, folks? Is, is the wonder of wonders that at Calvary... You know what happened at Calvary? God came along He said, You see that millstone? That millstone is your sin. But at Calvary, God takes this massive, jagged rock of our fallenness. He ties it about His own neck. And God Himself is plunged into the sea of human sin. Thus fulfilling the promise. Look at this. Micah 7, 19. I put it on the screen for you. God said, I will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. Your millstone, the millstone that was reserved for me, was tied around the neck of Jesus Christ and He plunged into that dark and awful sea. For the Lord has laid on Him. <laughs> Hallelujah. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, finally, listen to Grant Martin one more time. If you have had difficulty in removing your resentment about past hurts, try unloading the burden of anger and revenge on the thorn-scarred head of Jesus. With all the imagination... Now, he's giving you a prescription here. With all the imagination and feeling you can muster, direct your wrath in the direction of the cross. When your heart wants to strike out and physically injure your abuser, imagine the pain suggested by this verse, Isaiah 53, but He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds, we are... What's the word? What's the word, ladies and gentlemen? There is healing. I want to say to every victim, I have no idea who you are. You have worn your mask well. There's nobody here. There's not a soul here that knows. Maybe you told your roommate... Maybe you did tell your spouse. Maybe you have never told her or him. But I need to say, wherever you are sitting this morning, you need to know there is healing. There is healing for the sexual abuse you suffered at someone else's hands. That same little box 
I'm telling you, the same little box with the, with the Christian counselors and the organizations. You know what? Of course, somebody wants to sit down with you. Why do they want to sit down? Because there may be deeply embedded in your heart by now that which needs to be gently removed. I mean, that's what healing is all about. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing, it's not a sin to sit down with a counselor, ladies and gentlemen. Do you go to a doctor when you break an elbow? When you break a heart? Can you go to a counselor? You can. It's not a sin. It's not a shame. Somebody can sit down with you and lovingly, with a Christian perspective, look at those names in that box, can bring to you the release that can set your life free again. Go to our webpage, pmchurch.org.org. PM Church. There is healing. I promise you, healing will come. How does it work? Two stories, and then I'll sit down. Let's put Liz's story up on the screen. She was sexually abused by her grandfather from the age of two through the age of 14. Verbally abused by her parents, neg neglected in a family system full of violence and anger. Liz has come to terms with her journey, and I want you to read her words for yourself. Put them up on the screen. Liz is writing these words. I've been able to forgive those who abused me. It was not a simple step of saying the words, I forgive you. But a process I worked through, first expressing my anger in the privacy of a counseling session towards those who had hurt me, and then realizing the abusers are victims as I once was. They are still suffering from their own lusts. They have offended not only me, but also God. God has forgiven me, so I have forgiven them. I still have scars. When they are touched, I hurt but now I have tools to deal with the pain. Now I know God's love. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody here today is suggesting that the way of the cross or the way of forgiveness is easy. It is not easy. But it is the only way you can let go and be healed. And you will be healed. The outstretched arms of Calvary are your promise. You will be healed. If you let go. I promise two stories. This is the last one. You may need to do like Beth did. She wrote a letter to her dad and never sent it. Some of you, the abuser now is dead. You may need to write a letter just like this. Beth wrote it. Listen. Dad, I want you to know that I have told, I've told the secret. Somewhere in the hazy part of my mind, I remembered you telling me never to tell or. Or something horrible would happen. Or you'd kill me. Or I'd die. Or, or they'd take me away from you and mother. And then what would I do? Where would I live? These memories are hazy. But this I know without a doubt. You hurt me. And you did it with a malice and intention. It wasn't a mistake. Hurt. What a nondescriptive word to use for such influential circumstances. Tortured, ruined, tormented, destroyed, betrayed, hated. These words are better, but still not totally descriptive. Maybe if I use words to describe how I came to feel about myself, about other people, about life, you would hear. But I, I know that is not possible. You hear nothing because you are deaf. You see nothing because you are blind. I believe that's the way you want it to be. So you see, this letter really isn't for you because you couldn't see the words or comprehend their meaning. It's for me. Somehow forming these thoughts and saying these words makes me understand. And in understanding, I hope there is healing. Hope. There's a word that is rarely in my thinking and talking. 
What you did to me left me without hope. Without hope, there's nothing to strive for, nothing to live for. One who doesn't hope has no goals or dreams. He has no purpose. If someone has no purpose, there's no reason to exist. That's how I felt for as long as I can remember. You never talked to me when you were hurting me, but your deeds screamed to me in unheard voices, unworthy, unwanted, guilty, garbage. I heard all these things and hundreds more. I've heard those words and voices as long as I can remember. They caused me untold misery and agony. The pain I've existed with, not lived with merely, existed is so deep and black that it is indescribable. You are guilty. Your actions and deeds have made my life agony. I've thought of destroying you, literally of killing you. But your pain would be gone and mine would continue. I've thought of publicly exposing you to all of the family, to all of your friends, to all of your business associates. But would that be enough? Somehow, I don't think it would. I don't think there is anything I could do to you that could cause you the agony I've had. And believe this. If there was a way to get even, to repay, to revenge myself and be rid of you, I would do it. I realize that your actions caused me to believe many lies. Those lies caused me to believe very destructive and hurtful things. These things I believe in have caused me to make many pitiful decisions in life. You've not only affected me, but you hurt my son by the things I came to believe. But all is not lost for me because there is God. Somehow, for some reason, God has wanted me to live. He not only wants me to live, but to live with peace and joy. How is this possible? It's possible because God loves and cares for me. And as much as I want to be healthy and whole, He wants it even more. I believe God wants me to forgive. Why? <laughs> you don't deserve it. God knows that. All the demons in hell know it. You don't even want it, so why would I forgive you? For me, as I forgive you, I let go of you. The sorrow, the rage, the memories, and gain peace imperceptibly, minute bits at a time. I do not forgive you because you deserve it, but because I deserve it and God asks it of me. I cannot live with my bitterness any longer, for it has nearly destroyed me. I forgive you. I ask God to forgive you. I release you. Signed, Beth.